This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The cost of putting food on the table is going up in 2020. According to Canada's food price report, we can expect food prices to rise 4 to 6% in the next year or more than $500 for the average family. The researchers expect the biggest price hikes in the meat category. Will this affect your diet and what you purchase at the grocery store? Libby Snymer was joined by Simon Samoji Errol, Associate Professor in the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph. Well, there's a number of reasons. You mentioned meat. The other one would be vegetables as another category that's going up quite high. There are some similarities. You know, both are globally traded commodities, particular meat, meat, and we're seeing a big impact of politics. So China is one of the world's largest consumers of meat, particularly pork, and they have a problem with a virus called African swine fever. So they're trying to import as much pork as they can get from around the world. So that could mean high prices for Canadians across the board. Vegetables is another one. Vegetables has the issue in that the reality of the Canadian climate is that from now until May, the ground is too cold to grow vegetables in the traditional way. So we have to import a lot from US and Mexico. And then those trucks that ship us the the food tend to get or can get uh, impacted by weather events, slowdowns because of winter storms. Uh, We've seen things such as E. coli contamination. That's really hurt the romaine lettuce. And then trends and fads. We've seen earlier this year the the celery juice craze uh, where people were paying $7 a bunch for celery. So you have a lot of weather events, political events, even food scares and food safety issues impacting price. I'm also looking at seafood, which you have projected at 2 to 4%, so still mm-hmm. higher than inflation. I mean, people are trying to shift some of their consumption, say, of red meat to seafood, but everything is not going up as much as meat. What's happening there? Again, on that, you know, we've seen reports about contamination in fish farms and, and harm mm-hmm. to wild fish stocks. Mm-hmm. How do those factors play into what we have to pay at the grocery Store. It's interesting. Seafood is a truly global commodity. If you go down to your local grocery store and, and have a look at the, particularly the frozen seafood products, they come from all corners of the globe. So individual problems or shortages or you know bad weather and harvest, if it's particularly for aquaculture, can impact the prices that we pay all the way over here in Canada. We are a large producer of aquaculture and particularly Atlantic salmon being a favourite product of Canadians and most of North Americans. We've seen the the price of salmon increase remarkably over the last year. We've seen the events in BC with fish farm issues. We've seen droughts and other water-related issues impacting the supply of salmon. So, you know, seafood is, is a good alternative. We're not expecting prices to be as high going up, but you just need to be careful because seafood is... Let's be honest, particularly if it's fresh, 
not frozen, is very expensive anyway. So, Simon, how big mm. an issue is food waste? It's a big issue. I mean, we see people going to stores, particularly the big box stores like Costco, and they, they see the 10 kilograms of potatoes or, you know, the three kilograms of blueberries, and they buy them all, but then half of them rot in the fridge. I think there's two things you can do. The first thing is buy what you need. If there is a sale, use what you can and freeze what's left. I think another point is that we've had the Canadian Food Guide that's come out recently. It said a whole bunch of things about what foods people should be eating, but it talks a lot about cooking at home and restaurants are expensive. So if you want to cut down your food bill, go to less restaurants. And finally, there's one part of a grocery store that you can't get people to go to. It's a place where you've got generally high-quality vegetables. They may not look as good, they may not taste as good, but they're as nutritious as any of the other vegetables, and that's the frozen vegetable aisle. So don't be scared of frozen vegetables. They're a good thing, they're nutritious, but you only use what you need, and the rest you typically put in the freezer and keep it there until you need to use it. Simon Samoji Errol, Associate Professor in the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Toronto Mayor John Tory wants to significantly increase property taxes over the coming years. It's a reversal of what he's been saying throughout his tenure, and it's the biggest financial move of his time as mayor. This increase in the city building fund, which is dedicated to transit and housing projects, would come to 8% over the next six years. It looks like the mayor has a lot of support for this move because it comes after years of warnings that if investments aren't made in housing and transit, we will enter a period of crisis. Both city councillors Gord Perks and Shelley Carroll are in support of the plan. They joined Libby to discuss. Well, I know that this is coming as a shock to some people. I've had some calls, and it's tough. You know, a lot of people bought what is the average home in Toronto in our three big suburbs, and a long time ago when they bought it, they never expected that their property taxes as much as 400 480 a month, and that is a big hit. And we know that it's a big investment for people. I pay it myself in my own home. But we have a situation right now with transit just in the last two weeks, track fires, the unsexy work, not the the big new lines that the premier gets to announce, but the work that needs to be done to keep people moving and going to work every day, to keep our economy going. We have fallen woefully behind on that by putting off investment. And the mayor is recognizing finally that we have to make that investment. It is uh, irresponsible not to get started on that work in a really significant way. Yes, absolutely. The thing to remember is property taxes buy services. If you want to get your street plowed, if you want us to have a recreation program for seniors at a local community center, if you want a fire truck to show up, if there's a fire on your street, that costs money. We've been under-investing in those things. And if you had to go and meet all those needs out of your own money, it would cost an awful lot more than when we do it together through property taxes. So for most of us, unless you live in a home that's worth $2 million or more, you actually get 
more value out of a property tax increase in terms of the value of those services than you spend in the property taxes. So for 75, 80% of Torontonians, this actually makes life more affordable. That's one way of looking at it, but owning a home in Toronto is very expensive. They're just another poll out today saying that for millennials, it's like a pipe dream. And nearly half say that they would like to own a home, but it it just isn't going to happen for them. At the other end of the age spectrum, we have a lot of people on fixed incomes who bought homes back in the day when it was all very reasonable and suddenly their homes are worth a huge amount of money and that has an impact on property taxes and that in turn has an impact on their ability to stay in their homes. You raise a very important point, and that's why the city for years has had a program for people who are on fixed incomes or low incomes or people with disabilities or seniors that says we can defer your property taxes or waive your property taxes depending on your income and therefore make sure that you are looked after. Shelley, what is your take on this? The property tax are paid by any Torontonian with a fixed address. Unless you're homeless, you are paying property taxes, whether you pay it directly as a homeowner or you pay it as an apartment dweller. Part of the reason that rents are made up of what seems like a high rent to most tenants, and and they are higher these days, is because they include property taxes. And what we have been doing over the last few years is trying to balance that out because for a long time in Toronto, tenants on a per square foot basis actually paid much higher property taxes than homeowners, likewise condo dwellers. We've been balancing that down a bit, and that shift is now done so that it's a little more fair. But they still pay a slightly higher ratio than homeowners. They live in smaller dwellings, and so it it adds up to a smaller bill on a per-unit basis, but they're paying property taxes as well. So really, all of us, if we live in Toronto and we're lucky enough to have a roof over our head, we will be contributing to this. And for all of us, it will be money out of pocket. I'm painfully aware of that. Toronto City Councilors Shelley Carroll for Ward 17, Don Valley North, and Gord Perks for Ward 4, Parkdale, High Park. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Health and long-term care provided a lot of the focus of the Ontario Auditor General's annual report released this past Wednesday. Bonnie Lissick revealed in some cases there is poor quality of food in the province's nursing homes. Food either had poor nutrition nutritional value or was served past best before dates. The AG report also revealed that 70,000 patients are injured while receiving care in Ontario's hospitals every year. And Bonnie Lissick is calling for immediate government action to help reduce that number. Another finding, hospitals are currently not required to report events such as leaving a foreign object inside a patient. Joining Libby Snymer with reaction in the minutes after the report was released, Lisa Levin, Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario, the organization which represents nonprofit nursing homes in the province. We know that there's been an issue with care plans in long-term care homes, and that's because there's not enough staff and there's a lot of requirements under these care plans. It really needs to indicate all of the different requirements for people, such as bathing and dressing and eating. But it's 
very upsetting and disturbing to see some of the things that are in this report. What did you find the most upsetting thing in this report? It's the fact that for 15 years, we've been advocating to government for more funding for food and long-term care and for staff and long-term care. And it's because we know that this is such an important thing for people. And so the report sheds light on some of the issues that have arisen because of the lack of funding. I find disturbing here. It says that in three of the five long-term care homes where auditors conducted detailed work, some of the food used was past its best before date. That was something that surprised me as well. People do say that best before is not the same as expiry, but of course, none of us want to eat something that is not at their best before date. So this is an issue, once again, of lack of staffing. How is that lack of staffing? Because there's not enough staff at all in the long-term care homes. So I guess this seems like an issue of inventory management and people aren't paying close enough attention. Have you suggested any remedies for these things? We are going to be working with our members and the sector to provide education, training and best practices to help with things like inventory management, making sure that care plan information gets delivered to people in the dining room on time. So there's some things we can definitely do coming out of the report. But the real root of this is that there's $9.54 per person per day in funding for long-term care residents. And there's not enough staff to feed them, to prepare the food, and to assist with all the other activities in homes. So in terms of staffing, we want to have at least four hours of care per resident per day. And right now it's around 3.5 hours. But it's actually less than that because a lot of homes are working short-staffed because of the health human resources crisis that we're having. But I think the biggest barrier to people working in long-term care is they hear how burnt out people can be. People in long-term care have only like five or 10 minutes to get someone with dementia up and ready in the morning. And it's very difficult. There's not enough people to feed them and they just get very burnt out. Lisa Levin, Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. We continue with reaction to the Auditor General's report. The day after it was released on Thursday, Libby was joined by former Ontario Medical Association President Dr. Sean Watley, Ontario's long-term care minister, Marilee Fullerton, and the Auditor General herself, Bonnie Lissick. We looked at municipal and not-for-profit and for-profit homes, so my staff visited all three types of homes in Ontario. We hear we cover long-term care issues all the time, and one of the consistent problems is there's not enough staff. They are asking for four hours per day per resident. They can't always find the staff, and a lot of the problems that you cited seem to come down to that. I think what was interesting when we started this audit was looking at the data, and it's the number of residents in long-term care homes hasn't changed much from, let's say, 10 years ago. 77,000 people are roughly in the homes. It's, it's gone up a little bit, but you know, let's say 75 to 77,000. The average age has stayed the same, about 83 years, but what has changed is the cognitive ability. So 64% of the residents now have a form of dementia, such as Alzheimer's, which thereby requires more assistance with feeding and drinking. And so that's where you run into the issue of, is there enough time spent with each resident? When you talked about the never events, you know, leaving 
instruments inside patients, that kind of stuff, and it not being reported. I mean, we just a couple of weeks ago had a report on that from KIHI, from the Canadian Institute of Health Information. And so why is there such a big rate of harm to patients in Ontario? There's two things there. The KIHI reporting is on reportable incidents and preventable reportable incidents. Never events are things that should never occur. So that type of information isn't really collectively collected. So when we went to the hospitals, a sample of them did collect that information and others didn't. So what we're saying is the never event data should be collected by all the hospitals and reported to the ministry to make sure that those things don't happen. The biggest one isn't the instruments. The biggest one is ulcer pressures, so that come about perhaps if a patient isn't being regularly moved, if they're more immobile. So pressure ulcers is the key one there. Final, very quick question about nurses who had been fired or disciplined for incompetence or inappropriate behavior getting rehired. I mean, that to me rings a bell of those terrible Elizabeth Wetlaufer murders. How often is that happening? We looked at the movement of nurses in a sample of the hospitals. You know, there's lots of hospitals in Ontario. We looked at a sample of them. And what we did find is that it is possible for nurses to move around and be hired even if at their previous employer they were found to have harmed a patient or they were incompetent. It takes a lot to remove a nurse in terms of that. They get chances to show their competence. It's not just a one-off incident. And so I think we were surprised that we saw that a nurse who perhaps in a few cases has been deemed incompetent or has harmed patients still is able to work in the system either through you know, other hospitals or either through agencies. I mean, it's not rampant. I mean, the nurses that work in our hospitals are competent overall. These are people that slip through within the system and can work. And we think there's more controls needed around this and more exchange of personnel information to be enabled between the hospitals and with the agencies so that the people that are harming patients can't work in the system. And now I'd like to bring in Marilee Fullerton, who is the Minister of Long-Term Care in the province. Hello there. Hello, how are you? Fine, how are you? Very well, thank you. So what is your reaction to the deficiencies found in the long-term care sector in the Auditor General's report? I want to put a context to this, that there are roughly 85 million meals per year served to our residents in long-term care. And so the areas where there are deficiencies that the Auditor General points out, we will be collaborating with our sector as we have been doing since we started as a ministry a few months ago to make sure that the communication is clear and open about how we can help them improve with best practices. So this is about the health and well-being of residents and it's also about making things better for our sector so that we can work collaboratively and use best practices and the best evidence. The concepts surrounding adequate staffing, we are looking to build 15,000 new beds and redevelop another 15,000 within the next five years by 2023-24. So clearly a staffing strategy is needed and that is definitely on our radar from speaking to the long-term care home operators for the last several months and hearing from the public It's widely known that the staffing strategy is really needed. So we're working on that now 
understanding that we cannot build capacity without having adequate staff. I'd like to bring in Dr. Sean Watley, who is the former president of the Ontario Medical Association and now the Monk Senior Fellow in Health Policy with the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Hello, Sean. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So what do you make of what you've been hearing? First of all, is there anything in the Auditor General's report that surprised you? I don't think it's surprising. We need to figure out a way, number one, We don't want never events to ever happen. Number two, those bad outcomes, patient harm, things happen that should have been preventable. We need to have an environment where people feel safe to be able to speak up when that happens. And we know from the safety literature that if we create an environment where everybody's paranoid of opening their mouth about anything, safety actually gets worse. Dr. Sean Watley, Ontario Long-Term Care Minister Marilee Fullerton, and Ontario Auditor General Bonnie Lissick. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Barbara in Toronto phoned about a personal traffic enforcement experience. I was waiting for my friend to come out of the medical building and a police officer came and gave me a $150 ticket. I didn't see that you're not supposed to stop between four and six. You know, later, as I was driving my friend home, I saw all these cars making illegal U-turns in the middle of the street, going through red lights. I saw a stop sign that I stopped at, and other people just passed me by. And I thought, this is unbelievable. Alex in Brampton phoned to give an explanation for why some drivers aren't stopping after a hit-and-run collision. I think that one of the reasons why people do that is that they're, first of all, in a hurry. Secondly, they don't really want to get involved in this because, first of all, they'd have to stop and then call the police and wait for the police. And is there then an onus on them to provide some kind of care to that victim or whatever? I understand, you know, it's not an act of decency is required, but I think people just don't want to get involved. Diane in Scarborough called about Mayor John Tory's plan to hike property taxes 8% over six years to pay for new transit and housing projects. We live in a beautiful, wonderful city that offers so many services and benefits to everyone. But my concern is, why is just a segment of society having to pay for these things? Whenever the city needs money, they go after the property taxpayer. People with a house, are they considered rich, the elite, that we can afford this? Why is it that they're always beating up on us? If the city needs money, everyone should be paying because they're all benefiting from it. Why are you always picking on the property taxpayer? And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Mary in Etobicoke, who also weighed in on rising Toronto property taxes. I am a senior, and I become very offended with these councillors who must think that we are foolish pertaining to taxes. If we can't afford to pay them, defer them. Hello, they still have to be paid, either by us as of now or by our children in the future. This is foolish talk. Let's talk sensibly here and and language that 
people, like, you're not trying to put things off. And also, on that same tangent with the councillors, why have they not all along set money aside? I realize it can't be to the extent of the work we need now, done now, but some of it, just like we homeowners have to do, we have to maintain our homes. And then another thing, Libby, instead of, bingo, there's a problem, charge the taxpayers, why not go to New York City and ask them now how they manage? They're a much larger city than we are. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.